Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Friday, June 23rd, 2023 edition of On Iowa Politics. On the podcast this week, BVP versus the Supreme Court 3, Tulsi Grabbard has no regrets, and we have stories on policies that impact Iowans from mobile, heart, mobile home park residents to student loan debt holders to food assistance recipients. Hello, everyone. I'm Aaron Murphy, the Des Moines Bureau Chief for the Gazette in Cedar Rapids. With me for this week's podcast are Gazette Deputy Bureau Chief Tom Barton. Hello, Tom. Hello, Aaron. Lead Des Moines Bureau Chief Caleb McCullough here. Hello, Caleb. Good afternoon, Aaron. We have Sarah Watson of Quad City Times. Hello, Sarah. Hello, Aaron. Jared McNett of the Sioux City Journal is here. Hello, Jared. Aaron, let's uh, wrap this up. There's an empty seat on a private jet to Alaska that has my name on it. <laughs> yes. Just as long as it's not an empty seat in a submersible. Oh, oh, oh. oh no. too, 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 too soon. Too soon. All right. Too soon. Fair enough. Because <laughs> that's all Todd Dorman is here. Hello, Todd. Hello. Yeah, Jared, we don't want that seat to go to waste, so we need to get you out of here and make sure you're on that seat. That would be terrible. All right. Um, I, I, I love this week's podcast, and it doesn't have to always work out like this, but it's fun when it does. I have on our agenda plans to discuss uh, one story that was written by each of our panelists from this past week. So it's nice to be able to go around the horn and talk about something that uh, not as only is relevant, but something that we're all working on. Uh, of course, that also means that we have five topics to cover instead of the normal three or four. So we're gonna have to keep the discussion moving. Uh, Panelists here, you have been warned. I will go all Tim Albrecht on you. So just know that ahead of time. (laughs) Uh, So since this is the On Iowa Politics Podcast, let's start with our one purely political story. Uh, Sarah, this past week, you covered former Democrat turned Republican Tulsi Gabbard at a Scott County event that was hosted by the Republican Party of Iowa. Gabbard, uh, who was a Democratic presidential candidate in 2019, is now all too happy to slam her former party left and right. So naturally, the Iowa GOP welcomed her with open arms. Uh, Sarah, tell us a little bit about that event and what Gabbard had to say. And and I'm curious your thoughts. Tell us what you think Gabbard uh, is shooting for here. Does she want to run for president as a Republican? She hasn't given any indication of that yet other than coming to Iowa. Um, and if that's not it, what what is her end game here? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so yeah, so to start off, so Gabbard, uh, the Iowa GOP said that they were the ones who invited her to come speak. She's obviously somebody who's uh, left the Democratic Party to become an independent. Um, and about, I'd say close to 100 people came out to see her from Scott County, Clinton County, um, some other area counties. Uh, but certainly not as big of a crowd as, say, came to see Ron DeSantis in the same room earlier this year. Um, and there, I think it was just me and one TV station, local TV station that came to cover her. So national media did not descend upon this event either. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so basically what she talked about was why she left the Democratic Party. Um, she didn't talk about it. So I should say, so yeah, so she left the Democratic Party in o- October 2022, right before the midterm elections. Um, and she cited uh, uh, the 
party's foreign policy and uh, social policies. And so that was really reflected in her speech. She talked about how she feared for um, the rights of, of Christians in uh, the United States and religious freedoms. Um, and she talked about, uh, especially, she really talked about transgender um, people and policies around transgender people, talked about how uh, she believed that women as, as a, uh, you know, sector of society was uh, disappearing. Let me find the exact quote, but um, talking about like, uh, she opposed transgender women being allowed to play women's sports, um, things of that nature. So she definitely took a much more conservative lilt. She talked a little bit about uh, foreign wars, which was the centerpiece of her 2020 election campaign. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so, and at the very end, she didn't talk about this much during her speech, at the very end, she said that she is writing a book about why she left the Democratic Party. Um, so I think that that is probably her main reason for uh, coming and drumming up interest. Um, it also could just be, you know, raising her name profile it's possible somebody might try to pick her as a VP candidate, but I don't think that she was here to try to run um, as a candidate for the Republican Party. Um, I think she probably would have. My sense, I mean, obviously I can't see the inner workings you know, of her heart and mind, but I would think that she would have probably declared as a Republican instead of um, just leaving the Democratic Party and becoming an independent if she was interested in that nomination. Um, so yeah, but it, it was interesting. It was, it was kind of a bash on Democrats night, uh, for the Scott County and, and other GOP in the area. Yeah. Yeah. She was actually it. here to, uh, to check on her billboards and, and see how they're doing. <laughs> yeah. I have not seen any, I don't know if anybody else has seen any, but I think they've there, been there's out. one in just South of Ankeny that I still see from time to time. Um, when I drive that way and I'm pretty sure I've talked about it on the podcast before, uh, it, wow. it, kind of between Ankeny and Des Moines, there's a, like a little secondary highway, uh, not the interstate, but a little secondary highway there. And it's right there, right next to this restaurant we like to go to. And it's still there, Dulcie 2020. It's fantastic. And it's, yeah, uh, oh, go ahead, Caleb. I was just gonna say, it's very interesting what uh, four years can change. Cause I think the very first presidential candidate I covered as a as a college reporter was Tulsi Gabbard uh, running as a Democratic candidate under the direction of Daily Iowan politics editor Sarah Watson, um, <laughs> interestingly enough. So, yeah, I mean, it was, it's so, there. I, I, so there's some similarities. I, I remember at that time um, there was she ha caught some flack from Democrats on her past stances on gay marriage. Um, so, you know, that seems to track. But but I mean, she also was very, you know, economically very aligned with like the Bernie Sanders part of the party. So it's just interesting how, how quickly that's all changed. Yeah, that's I, I was, one thing she did not touch on at all was economy. It was very, it was very focused on like social conservative issues. I was going to say, Caleb, it, it's not entirely surprising in, in the time since that she's kind of taken this pivot because even when she was running and like right after she was like picking fights, I remember with Hillary Clinton, I think she got into it with, um, and like there were people on the right wing even then in like 2020 that if they praised any Democrat for anything, it would be Tulsi Gabbard over and over again. Like uh, Tucker Carlson would praise her on his show. Alex Jones would even praise her on like his show and some other like um, very right wing figures like that. So this doesn't feel entirely surprising, this kind of uh, gradual shift 
uh, right word. Yeah. And Jared, does that make RFK Jr. the new Tulsi Gabbard? <laughs> maybe so. Maybe so. <laughs> I I will say I do wonder if um if uh if Tulsi Gabbard does decide to run for uh, president on the Republican side anytime soon, how many other uh, people we can think of that have run in the Democratic Party uh, primary and the Republican Party primary? That list can't one, be very one big. literal cycle apart on top of it. <laughs> yes, maybe that's her her real goal. She's going for like a Guinness record or something. Making history. <laughs> Making history. That's right. Okay. Uh, moving on to a story now that's a mixture of policy and politics. In the week of the Iowa Supreme Court split ruling last week on the so-called fetal heartbeat bill, which we discussed at length last week's podcast, if you missed it, check that out. Iowa conservative Christian leader Bob Vanderplatz said he believes the three justices who voted to uphold the lower court ruling, thus leaving the fetal heartbeat bill blocked, should be impeached or removed. Vanderplatz, of course, led the 2010 conservative revolt against the Iowa Supreme Court justices who the year prior had, in a unanimous decision, delivered a ruling that made same-sex marriage legal in Iowa. Todd, you wrote about Vanderplatz's latest beef with the Iowa Supreme Court uh, here this past week. Everybody check that out. Um, is uh, he planning the same sort of campaign that him and his family leader organization waged in 2010? Well, it's, you know, it's it's sort of hard to tell. He was disappointed and angry about the ruling because the court didn't, you know, didn't accept Governor Reynolds' sort of complicated case to just reinstate the bill that was ruled unconstitutional in 2018. Uh, so he probably was also upset that the 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 justice who wrote the opinion, Thomas Waterman, kind of, uh, you know, the last paragraph of the of the ruling where <laughs> he talked about a previous ruling that, you know, we protecting constitutional protection for searches of your garbage, but no constitutional protection for bodily autonomy for, for women. So that, that probably was sent a signal that, that Bob didn't like. And when Bob doesn't like something, what you know, something that the court does, he starts talking about, you know, yanking justices off the bench. What I, what I really think he was doing, though, I don't expect, well, you know, one big factor in this is that the three justices aren't up again until 2028. So that's, uh, you know, I don't do math very well, but that seems like, you know, five years down the road. And I, <clears throat> I don't know what the political climate's going to be like at that point. But I think he, I think what he's really doing is sort of telegraphing to the justices that, you know, when the, when the, the big enchilada comes, you know, when the, when the legislature passes a re bill restricting abortion, it gets challenged in court and the Supreme court will be deciding whether it's constitutional and by what uh, level of judicial review abortion bill should be subject to in Iowa. I think he's sending them a signal that, hey, if you if you uh, if you veer off and and don't find it constitutional, then yeah, we are we are gonna come for you then. And uh, you know, depending on when they do that, 2024, you know, the case probably, you know, it could you know it, it gets a little closer to 2028, still not exactly, but I think he's trying to apply political pressure, which is, 
you know what his group does uh, no normally in these sort of this sort of cases. Yeah, and I thought, and 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 that's why I asked you that, and and that's a that's a really interesting answer, Todd. I, I think it makes a lot of sense, but that's why I asked that specifically because, um, at the, at, on, as of as we sit here right now, you know what he said and did this time around is much different. Again, right now than 2010. I mean, that was a huge organizational effort, a massive, literal statewide campaign. Um, uh, that he did and was successful in 2010 versus like you saying right now, it, it, it's still kind of, no, he could eventually do that to, to what you said. And it's a few years down the road anyways. Um, but I think it's important to make that distinction between, you know, organizing a massive campaign versus complaining in the Des Moines register and on Twitter. Yeah. I think, you know, in, in 2010, this whole idea of, tossing justices off the bench was sort of a, a new concept. I mean, we've been doing these retention votes. The justices generally passed with, with large majorities. So a lot of people didn't even bother to vote in them. They weren't sure what it meant. Some people vote against all the judges just because they, you know, don't like judges for some reason. Uh, but, you know, but then he went after Justice Wiggins in 2014 and failed. After everybody knew the score and after everybody knew exactly what was happening, he he failed to to you know to uh, get rid of a democratically appointed justice. So I don't know. I mean, I I think you know I think a lot of Iowans that understand what he's trying to do may not be may not be okay with it. And uh, I don't like I say I, I don't get a sense that he's organizing now i mean would he be a loud cheerleader on the sidelines if if some republicans decided to impeach these justices sure i think i think he would uh i don't think they're going to do that but i mean this legislature i have no i have sometimes you have no clue exactly what they're going to do but i would be surprised if they if they did that uh based on this case yeah so i'll just would you though yeah, I guess it depends on what you mean. Like, it's a, it's a big. Would they go through with it versus will there be someone who will introduce? Oh, there'll, there'll be someone that will introduce. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's just a matter of whether they would actually right have an right. impeachment proceeding, you know, in the House and, and Senate. Yeah. So just to to jump in there, um, I did talk to um, a couple. Uh, House Republican lawmakers for um, a story that, in, uh, that will run in Sunday's paper looking at, you know, what are the next steps, options um, for uh, lawmakers and um, the, uh, you know, anti-abortion effort in Iowa in the wake of um, the Supreme Court ruling. Anyway, um, so uh, I talked to um, House Republican uh, Steve Holt from um, Denison, who, um, you know, has been kind of a, um, a, a, a vocal critic, I guess, opponent of, of abortion and, and supports um, uh, uh, life at uh, conception. Um, and I asked him about um, Bob Vanderplatt's comments and, and specifically about you know, raising the specter of um, impeachment and, and, you know, essentially what he said is, 
you know, he's he's not interested in that. You know, lawmakers aren't aren't really talking about that. Aren't focused on that. You know, their their focus right now is you know, do we call a special session? You know, and if we do, you know, what what do we pass? You know, do we just pass another version of the fetal heartbeat bill this time and um, you know essentially um, force the Supreme Court to rule on the merits of that law as opposed to process and, and, and procedure um, do we go a step farther or you know do we wait and and, and just uh, kind of for lack of a better term maybe kick the can down the road a little bit um, and and wait to take us up um, with the next general general assembly or general session in January um, and I, and I talked to another House Republican as well who essentially echoed um, um, representative Holt saying that you know lawmakers aren't really interested in setting um, a precedent of um, you know impeaching justices anytime they issue a, an order or a ruling that um, you know conservatives disagree with that you know there are other other avenues you know legislative avenues processes in place for them to um, address this issue than taking that you know heavy-handed approach of, of impeaching the justices. Yeah, and I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see some legislation that's geared toward giving, you know, in this case, Republicans, which are who are in control at the state house, giving, you know, Republican politicians more say in how justices are selected. You know, we've we've seen those bills in the past, uh, and you know, they haven't gotten a lot of traction. There have been minor changes, but yeah, I think. I think tightening the the grip of, you know, politicians on the courts is possible. Yep. And I'll just quickly add, I, I should mention that um, uh, Representative Holt, um, as well as a other House Republican member that I talked to, um, said that they shared um, kind of the uh, uh, Bob Vanderplatt's frustration with um, the the justices that um, the the dissenting justices are. I guess those um, three justices um, who, um, you know, in in their opinion, you know, essentially upheld um, the permanent injunction in place for the fetal heart people, um, saying that yeah, they're they're upset as well with with their opinion and, and their legal reasoning and 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 the reasons that they um, essentially supported upholding that, that permanent injunction. Um, so, so yeah, there, there definitely is, um, I guess they, they share some of the outrage again and, and frustration over, um, the, the opinion issued by those three justices. Yeah, Tom, I imagine, uh, some of them were upset about the phrasing of hypothetical law. Did you hear anything about that? That that's exactly what they cited. Um, Steve Holt specifically, um, cited that, um, and, uh, and, and yeah, that, um, yeah, that, that did not sit well with, um, with those House Republican lawmakers. Yeah, I've heard that term come up, too. I think that's the one we'll be hearing about as this ruling is uh, discussed uh, as we move forward on this. Um, all right, moving on. Uh, let's get into our policy impact block here. Um, we start with a little sneak preview, depending on when you're listening to this podcast, I guess a story that will be appearing Saturday in the Sioux City Journal. Uh, our own Jared McNett is writing about mobile home park lease terminations. Uh, so Jared, give us your best shot at uh, towing that line between giving us just enough to be interested in the story, but not too much that we still want to read it on Saturday. 
there's uh, there's plenty of compelling stuff for me to give away without uh, giving away the whole store. So so no worries, Aaron. Perfect. Um, I, um, a few weeks back, um, a photographer, uh, Jesse Brothers, and I um, went up to Okoboji for a trilogy or a trio of stories, rather. Um, two of them were about what all is new at the uh, Arnold's Park Amusement Park there, which, if anyone hasn't been, is the uh, definition of a summertime attraction for sure. Um, and then our other story, we went to a, a mobile home park which is literally right across the road from the amusement park to um, talk with residents who had at that time uh, um, less than 90 days to leave because their leases had been terminated um, after a new development group took ownership in uh, on May 1st. Um, several of the, the folks that we talked to are on disability or social security or both. Um, one woman had congestive uh, heart issues and kidney failure. Um, and given what the, the finances are of the, the residents of the mobile home park that we talked to, um, they're incredibly worried because they don't know where exactly they're going to be able to relocate to in the area because Okoboji is one of the pricier regions in the entire state to try to find, you know, especially try to find a house and even uh, an apartment. Um, and they're also very concerned, too, because they said um, you know, the movers that they've called, some of them won't take older mobile homes, even if they're in good shape because of liability issues. And um, they, they have 90 days to, to do all of this because last year the, uh, the legislature passed a law um, it, upping the advance notice for a lease termination from 60 days to 90 days. Um, and at that time, which I talked about in the story, uh, there were Democratic state legislators, including uh, Zach Walls, who um, said the legislation didn't go far enough to uh, protect landowners. And um, I talked to the state senator in that area, Dave Rowley, um, and he said the law was a win-win for tenants um, and landlords because it extended those um, those timeframes for, for terminations. And I also um, asked him if there's any appetite to extend those windows further or, you know, to look at a bill adding other protections for mobile home owners. Uh, and he said that that was also unlikely. And I um, I asked as well if there was any other, if any other constituents or any constituents at all had um, contacted him about the issue. And he said at that point he hadn't heard from anyone. So, you know, all, all in all, the, the story looks at uh, some of that recent legislative history. It looks at um, four different residents that we talked to, what their plans are, what the plans are for, for the mobile home park once everybody's gone. And then also just kind of the tensions of living in a town where land is really at a premium and the demand for uh, tourist lodging is, is basically constant and how it's even possible to, to navigate some of that. So. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's the gist. I don't think I gave away too much. <laughs> no, that was good. I'm interested, Jared. Um, I don't know if you asked them this question specifically, or if you didn't. Do you have a sense of whether those um, mobile home park residents feel that that legislation was a win-win for them? I I didn't get a sense that it was. A lot of them, in general, just felt like they need more time. That's that's a thing that came up over and over again, that to them, 90 days is, is not nearly enough time, especially at a time of year when, you know, there's a lot going on, other people are out and about or moving or any other number of things. So, yeah. Yeah, no, and I and I remember that, that bill and, and the discussion over it, and you mentioned 
um, the Democratic lawmakers who were, uh, thought it didn't go far enough. Uh, I remember former Iowa Attorney General Tom Miller's office got involved too, trying to argue for some more uh, protections and, and uh, uh, that's not what ultimately wound up in the bill. Um, and, and this is an issue that's been around in other areas of the state and, and uh, uh, so not surprising that it's popping up uh, there too. Uh, I look forward to seeing that story. Yeah, because it's, you know, it's a very like precarious thing because, you know, even if you own like the mobile home, owning a mobile home is different than owning, you know, a, a, another kind of home because you're still on a lot that usually is not your own. And so you're ultimately even if you've put, which some of the residents have done, you know, put tens of thousand dollars into additions and everything else, you're still ultimately at the whims of whoever actually owns that land. That's exactly right. That's a great uh, clarification. All right, moving on. Uh, next up, Tom Barton wrote about the new state law that added an asset test to government-funded food assistance benefits known as SNAP. Uh, Tom profiled an Iowa City family that may lose its SNAP benefits because of that new state law and some savings that they have accumulated. So uh, Tom, uh, give us a little uh, more about that story and uh, we encourage people to go find that one. Yeah, um, so I spoke to a family of four from Iowa City. Um, it's uh, a mom and a dad and they have um, two young kids, uh, a, a, a son and a daughter, a six-year-old, or excuse me, four-year-old and a two-year-old. And um, uh, the dad is a uh, PhD student at uh, the University of Iowa excuse me. Um, and he, uh, again, a graduate student uh, who's paid about $20,000 a year to teach classes while he's finishing his PhD program in English. Um, his take-home pay is about $2,000 a month. Um, the wife works uh, part-time from home because of the cost of childcare makes it financially untenable for her to work full-time and pay for childcare. And she earns about $1,000 a month uh, working in, in freelance uh, marketing. So um, the family uh, receives um, SNAP food benefits. Um, it also uses, um, it, it, well, and I should say that they use uh, a portion of their SNAP benefits to pay for a share in um, uh, a, a community supported agricultural operation that allows them to buy uh, fresh seasonal produce directly from local farmers. The uh, family also uses uh, Double Up Food Bucks. It's a SNAP incentive program that matches purchases of fruits and vegetables at Iowa grocery stores, farmer markets, and other locations. And so for every um, $1 um, spent by the family on any fresh fruits and vegetables with a SNAP uh, uh, benefit or debit card, the family gets um, $1 in double up food bucks to spend for more fresh fruits and vegetables. So as a result, the family pays for only about half of its um, CSA share using about um, $500 for a year's worth of vegetables. But the farmers still get the four, the full, excuse me, $1,000. Um, so, you know, in addition to these um, public assistance benefits, um, you know, helping uh, the family with, with food costs, um, you know, it, it's also directly helping um, Iowa farmers um, that, you know, benefit from uh, uh, families using these benefit dollars to, again, um, buy directly from. Iowa farmers. Um, so um, 
the new law limits households to um, a maximum of uh, $15,000 in liquid assets in personal property in order to receive SNAP benefits. Um, the applicant's home, a first car of any value, and then a second car worth up to $10,000, um, as well as retirement counts, I believe, are not included in that uh, calculation and then recipients also you know there's there's income restriction you know the household income can't be more than 160 percent of the federal poverty level so that's about um, a little more than $23,000 for an individual or um, $48,000 for a family of four. Um, the issue is um, this family um, which um, also receives other um, public assistance benefits, um, including um, uh, WIC, which is uh, 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 women, infants, and children. Um, they had been saving up during the pandemic to provide um, a safety net um, that, you know, is, is a combination of you know, um, saving for a um, down payment on a house. You know, right now um, they rent and they're paying uh, more than $14,000 a month in rent. Um, you know, that safety net is also um, supposed to uh, help with retirement and college savings um, as, as well as, you know, just a rainy day fund, um, which, you know, um, up until, you know, a couple of years ago, um, you know, they had no savings, they had no safety net. Well, they um, were able to, squirrel away um, money from, you know, receiving the um, uh, expanded uh, federal child tax credit um, that, that was expanded during the pandemic and has since ended. Um, they also received a credit on their tax refund for their son who was born during the pandemic. Um, and then, you know, they also squirreled away money from federal stimulus checks. Um, and, and so they've now amassed what um, the family estimates to be about Ten thousand to fifteen thousand uh, dollars in savings, um, and you know, uh, prior to the no, the new law taking effect, you know that wasn't a problem. Now the family's anticipating that they're um, going to lose those those food benefits, and they argue that rather than lifting Iowans out of poverty, the new law makes it harder for families like theirs um, to get ahead and become self-sufficient because it penalizes Iowa households for having modest savings or more than one reliable vehicle. Um, you know, the, the, the um, uh, uh, mother uh, of the family that, that I talked to, you know, talked about how um, you know, this is going to uh, essentially lead to them draining their savings account uh, to go back on SNAP. And so now the family's in a more vulnerable position um, than when they started. Yeah, yeah. And that's, and it's, it's interesting because, um, you know, when that bill is being debated, uh, it, it was proposed and argued it was needed because it, it will um, keep um, the people who need it in the program, the people who genuinely need it in the program, and make sure that those that don't need it uh, aren't uh, using up the resources. And, and this uh, example kind of shows that uh, maybe that there's a little gray area there. It's not quite as cut and dry um, as yeah. it may, see, may seem. 
I, and I, I should add in here, um, I did um, speak with somebody from um, the Iowa chapter of uh, Americans for Prosperity. It's a conservative issue advocacy organization that registered in support of um, the legislation, the new law um, that argued, you know, $15,000 in savings should be enough to move any family off of public assistance. Um, and that, um, that, you know, in Iowa, um, state officials need to balance that we're taking care of Iowans who are, are are truly in need and truly need and benefit from that assistance, uh, and taxpayers who are, are ultimately on the hook, whether that's state or federal dollars, um, and said, you know, obviously we want you know people to reach self self sufficiency and move off of you know these public assistance or welfare programs, as they put it. You know that's the goal, but at what point do we say this person has made it and worked their way out of the system and? Their their argument, their contention is that, you know, $15,000 in assets provides a household with a rainy day fund, money for a down payment on a house, and that those are pretty solid indicators that somebody is, is moving out of, out of poverty to a point where they can um, stand on their own two feet. All right. Uh, and finally this week, uh, Caleb McCullough wrote about the pending restart of the collection of student loan payments, including a look at the topic through the prism of how it might impact the economy. So, uh, Caleb, tell us a little bit more about your story. And again, we encourage everybody out there to go find that one. Yeah, uh, we're likely to get a ruling on that um, decision sometime this uh, month. It did not happen today, but um, on the decision uh, from the Supreme Court, whether to uphold or strike down President Biden's plan to forgive up to $20,000 in student debt for borrowers making up to $125,000 a year. Um, so, in how that translates to Iowa, um, the Biden administration, when the plan was announced, uh, anticipated more than 400,000 Iowa borrowers would be eligible for that forgiveness. Um, as of January, 264,000 borrowers had applied and about 169,000 had been um, already approved. And then that application window and the whole program was paused by a federal judge. Um, but uh, regardless of the decision on that case, um, payments on the student loans will resume in October. So I spoke with Peter Orzem. He's a Iowa State uh, University economics uh, professor for the story. And, you know, looking at the general impact of payments resuming, he said that the student loan pause has been in general very good for borrowers, um, regardless of whether the forgiveness goes through or not, they should be in a better position now to pay off their loans than they were when the pause started. Um, if you imagine you're paying $200 a month and you don't have to pay that for three years um, and the loan isn't accruing interest, uh, that's essentially $200 that you can spend on other things or put into savings or investments. Um, so now there is a bit of a question as to whether people did that or whether it was feasible for many borrowers to, to do that or whether they had to direct that money to more more kind of necessities and, and spending. Um, and that was kind of what, what a Pew study um, from 2021 found. About 60% of borrowers said the money that they would have otherwise spent on their student loans was going toward necessities like rent and food. Um, I don't know if that has changed since then, um, but uh, you know, when these payments resume in October, uh, Orism said that those that were putting kind of their monthly payments into savings or into a pension or something will, will be in a pretty good position, but um, based on some of the data, it looks like maybe some others may have trouble fitting it back into their monthly budget. Um, now, if the forgiveness does go through, that will obviously be a good thing for borrowers. Uh, it's just $10,000 or $20,000 they don't have to pay. Um, it will 
it is possible uh, some economists and, and Orism have suggested that it could um, be inflationary uh, that frees up that debt and also allows those borrowers to borrow more money for something like a car or a home. And that could um, drive up, you know, demand for goods. But other analyses have found that, um, you know, when payments resume, because payments are resuming at the same time, it, it kind of is a wash. Um, so we'll have to see how that all shakes out uh, if it does get forgiven. So. Yeah, you um, you mentioned something there that I struck me when I was reading it. I wanted to ask you when the Orism uh, Professor Orism said um, for those who have been pocketing away, saving uh, the money they would have been um, otherwise uh, paying on these um, loan payments. That doesn't sound like the kind of thing that happens with any great percentage in practice. Like it, it's like a good idea probably. And then like 5% of, and I'm just, I don't, that's not a scientific number. I'm just throwing a number at the wall, but it doesn't seem like the kind of thing that most people do. Is there any data on that of how many yeah. people it's hard to tell and and um or as i even said he you know the solid data it's, it's hard to to come by on this um but from that study that i cited um about half of the um borrowers who were surveyed said that uh they were still paying making those payments um not even putting them in savings but making them to their loan now right. that was uh about a year after the pause began so maybe in the years since uh the, the, that practice has kind of uh slowed down um, but yeah, so it's, it's, it's hard to tell at the moment, um, exactly how, what percentage of, of people, uh, put that into savings, but I, I imagine it's not very big. Yeah. Interesting. It'll be interesting to see. And obviously the, the, the root, as you said, the, the, the court ruling impacts which direction this goes first, and then it'll in, in, in be interesting to see the, the impact in, in general. Yeah. Uh, all right. I think that does it. So the, like I said, the, kind of a cool week. Everybody's uh, working on good stuff. So uh, for the stories that are already written, go watch them. And for the ones that are uh, coming that we talked about, uh, uh, keep an eye out for those this weekend. Uh, a lot of great stuff being put together here by your uh, favorite Lee and Gazette reporters. And that's it for this edition of On IO Politics. If you enjoyed it, tell your friends and subscribe to us wherever you find your podcasts. And now that you've listened to the On Iowa Politics podcast, make sure you're also subscribed to the On Iowa Politics newsletter, where every morning in your inbox will receive all the latest politics and government coverage from our team. You can subscribe to that free newsletter at the Gazette's website, thegazette.com. And lastly, don't forget that the work of everyone you heard here today, all these great stories, can be found on the pages and websites of the Quad City Times, Muscatine Journal, Cedar Rapids Gazette, Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier, Mason City Globe Gazette, and Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil, and the Sioux City Journal. McFisto will play us out this week. If you know an Iowa band or musician who should be featured on the podcast, please send us a sound file. For Tom Barton, Caleb McCullough, Sarah Watson, Jared McNett, Todd Dorman, and our producer Stephen Colbert, I'm Aaron Murphy. Thank you all for listening.
Get a daily update from the Gazette with our daily news podcast. Add it to your podcast player or your Alexa-friendly device to get a bite-sized local news update each day. Check it out at thegazette.com slash podcasts.